Welcome to this episode of Season 4 of The Common Bridge, where policy and current events are discussed in a fiercely nonpartisan manner. The host, Richard Helpy, is a philanthropist, entrepreneur, and political analyst who has reached over 3.5 million listeners, viewers, and readers around the world. The Common Bridge is available on the Substack website and the Substack app. Just search for The Common Bridge. You can find the program on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. The Common Bridge draws guests and audiences from across the political spectrum, and we invite you to become a free or paid subscriber on your favorite medium. Hello, welcome to The Common Bridge. I'm your host, Rich Helping. Guess what? I'm hosting another host. We've got with us today, coming back to The Common Bridge, the host of Politics and Media 101, Mr. Justin Higgins. Justin's great to see you. How are you? Rich, great to see you as well. Doing doing pretty good. No football, so we can really just spend our weekend uh, focusing on our hobby horse, which is the news and politics. So I couldn't be happier to be joining you on your show again. Indeed, and no meaningful hockey today either, so we're going to leave it at that. You know, we used to be able to take days like this and go across the river and watch the Windsor Spitfires play, but you know the board is just not what it used to be anymore, You know, going across. But Justin, you've had some great guests on your show recently, and tell our audience a little bit about your show and you know some of the shows you've had on recently, and maybe a couple that are coming up, if you don't mind. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to, Rich. It's really a, I guess you could say, centrist type of political podcast where we focus on the news and the media. We do your standard Q&A interview questions with subject matter experts. And then we also have more discussion-oriented shows with columnists from the left and from the right. And then we just try and focus on the issues that we believe are truly important, whether they're getting a ton of coverage or not enough. So just to put a real point on this, uh, we had a recent show with cons- uh, the American Enterprise Institute's head of economics, which is a conservative think tank. Mm-hmm. And we focused on the importance of the national debt. And uh, also we focused on the importance of uh, the debt default discussions, right? So that we took that from a, a conservative voice. We're not experts. So it was really a Q&A. Um, and, and then coming up, we have uh, a show with, I'm pretty excited for this. At some point in March, we have a show with the chairman of the Natural Resources Committee, who's a Republican in the House, Bruce Westerman. So we're going to be talking about things like climate change, American energy independence, uh, mining for critical mineral rights, Rich, which, which most people don't realize is a climate change thing. You need all this lithium and cobalt. Uh, so we're going to get into the policy nitty gritty. And the most recent episode we have will be Tuesday with Noah Smith, who is kind of this centrist substacker, and we're going to be looking at the US-China. So that's just a, a little smattering of the different types of conversations we have. I encourage my listeners and viewers to go over to Politics and Media 101. Justin has some great guests. He's a good interviewer. He had a really good guy talking about guns and healthcare. A few episodes back. Oh, that was me. Just kidding. Um, we turned it into two episodes. In, indeed. And so he's really a, he got a hold of something really good right now. The show on the debt was quite good and quite informative. And I think Justin and I are both trying to gnaw away at the edges of the same thing. And that's simply that the media has quit being the media anymore, that they've devolved into this antagonistic thing, trying to make people angry to get clicks and eyeballs and the like, trying to write a narrative first versus getting facts. And we think that this new media model that we have coming up on Substack and through independent researchers and interviewers like Justin and myself, perhaps is a better way forward. 
we're recording this today on February 5th. And the news, I think that we can all agree on the facts, is that the Air Force shot down a Chinese balloon out over the Atlantic. But what do you think about the media coverage about the spy balloon? So, I mean, I think before we get into the media coverage, I saw, I think it was a TikTok video, which I support banning TikTok since we're on China surveillance and stuff like that. But putting that aside, I, I think I saw two South Carolinians who were getting rather drunk yesterday and they saw the shot down. Not, not sure if you saw this video, but they had that Southern twang and they were, you know, very proud to be Americans. They were screaming, F yeah, that's my Air Force. And for a moment, I felt very proud of the country to defend our sovereign airspace, shoot that balloon down and listen to, I assume these conservatives uh, who were just like, yeah, go get them. So I, I think that that was funny. I don't know if you've had the chance to see that. I, I, I haven't seen that, but I did hear Walter Kern, I think is the name is that's on or Walter Kim that's on with Matt Taibbi who lives in Montana, who was hilarious about trying to find his old dusty hunting rifle. <laughs> uh, so he could be the lookout to get the, balloon. But it was really interesting as if uh, the Chinese sent this obvious listing device over U.S. soil, over Canadian soil to try to probably intercept communications and whatever else they could or preposition for an electronic magnetic pulse or something. And I have it on good authority. Don't ask where I know this from, but they weren't targeting Republicans or Democrats or red or blue or north or south. They were pretty much targeting North America, especially United States. But the coverage was pretty amazing. What are some of the things that you took away? So, so Rich, I think the media coverage, generally speaking, was pretty good. It's very difficult to describe these issues in full accuracy when we have the quote-unquote fog of war. So when not all the information is readily available up front and the media is learning along with us. So you're going to have assumptions or implications that may not turn out to be accurate. I think the most interesting thing to me is maybe why this was made public and the timing that it was made public, because we learned from the DOD that this happened twice during the Trump presidency and they just didn't publicize it. And then also it happened earlier in the Biden presidency. And the other facts that were really important for me is that ultimately they were aware of this right away, went into Alaska, then over Canada, then came back down. They're saying that there was no ability to ensure 100% that there wouldn't be casualties on the ground if it was shot over uh, U.S. land because of the seven-mile radius of debris from this metal structure. And I think very, very importantly is, is two other aspects coming from the military. Number one, we were able to uh, jam this balloon's ability to uh, communicate with the satellites and report information back to mainland China, according to the military. Um, and that is very important because it did go over critical military installations across the country. Uh, and, and then the second thing is they claim that by letting this apparatus fly over our airspace, we were actually able to uh, gather our own intelligence. So not only were the Chinese allegedly not able to gather intelligence, we were able to gather our own intelligence, shoot it down. Now we'll be able to look at it more. So I think it's a very interesting story. And I think generally speaking, the coverage that I saw, Rich, was was pretty good. 
Yeah, I mean, there was always the speculation early on, and you saw some of the narratives fueled by their interviews of some of the fringe people, Marjorie Taylor Greene, to say, what's she going to say outrageous about this? Well, she said, well, Trump never would have let this occur. Well, actually, you know, it did occur a couple of times. And then I, I was reading, it was like, why doesn't Biden shoot this down? He's a bad president for not shooting it down. Then Biden shoots it down. He's really a bad president for shooting it down. It's like, come on, is the contempt for the public on the part of reporters that much that they can switch 180 degrees without blinking an eye? And like, who was surprised that the Chinese would be spying on us? I mean, we have spy planes overhead. We have satellites looking down on them. We're intercepting communication. I'm sure we still have it, but we had submarines laying on the floor of the ocean outside Murmansk, tapped in to the then Soviet Union's communication cables. Of course, they're looking at us. We're looking at them. This is not like a brand new incursion. I'm sure it's been going on forever. And I pray and hope, I don't like to talk about this type of stuff publicly, but I pray and hope we have nuclear submarines sitting, you know, very close to Taiwan, for example, because China is a nuclear threat. They are a competitor. I don't want to brand them an enemy, but this this is the type of stuff that goes on to your point about the media. I think that, and we see this a lot, Rich, right? Um, I, I think that we had, you know, our partisan bubbles and specifically with the examples that you brought up. It's very easy to say, let's just shoot this down. But if you give me the facts that we just discussed about jamming intelligence, gathering intelligence, preventing loss of human life, to me, that is the best case scenario. If you're saying, let's just pass up an opportunity to collect potentially valuable information on the CCP government and their spying apparatus just to get political points for shooting this down, that to me is almost... I don't want to say un-American, but it's rather offensive, right? This is our competitor. We're not here to just uh, go shoot something down for Fox News or, or whatever, CNN. Uh, you pick your your own. Uh, Biden's manhood by you know shooting it down. And, and, and look, there's a lot to be gained from letting the Chinese think they're getting away with it, because then you can do countermeasures that they don't know of. During the Reagan administration, it was discovered that the Soviets were stealing software that controlled pipelines. And Reagan, from his desk, made a point of not saying anything about it. And they put bugs in the software that, when activated, caused the pipelines to burst and, and the Russians to lose all that oil. And of course, the Russians couldn't come back and say, hey, you put a software bomb in the code we stole from you. So I just hope that our intelligence people are a jump ahead of their intelligence people. And again, it was one of those stories based on who you thought was the villain or who you thought was the hero. That's how the story got slanted. And then, you know, we're going to go pick up a soundbite from Adam Schiff, or we're going to, you know, pick up one from Marjorie Taylor Greene, because we know what they're going to say. And neither one of them has any shame about just blurting whatever's in their head because they never get called on it. But let's let's go on some other stuff in the in the news lately. Who's got the documents? OK, <laughs> who's got the classified documents? Far too many people, Rich. That's the answer to that question. <laughs> but isn't that something that I mean, you've, you've spent a lot of time in Washington. Uh, from my understanding, I don't have quite the sophistication you've got on this. That's been a battle for every president that's left office. Is that a 
classified document that belongs to the United States or is it a personal document that belongs to the occupant of the White House? I'm not saying that we're hearing those arguments at this time, but there's a lot of classifications and it seems like everybody's got them. Mike Pence has got them for Pete's sake. Yeah. So the way that this is supposed to work, and Mitch McConnell made a statement along these lines, at least for members of Congress and their staff, assuming you have a security clearance, is this type of classification, these type of classified documents, they're only supposed to be viewed in a skiff, which as everybody knows, is this basically secure room, which you can't really hack into, you can't bring phones into it. And it's basically just this black box rich of concrete room and you go in there and you view the documents. You're not allowed to take notes. You're just there to read what these highly sensitive classified materials are. I think that in this instance, a few things are interesting here. Number one, it doesn't seem that the public truly cares about this issue um, regarding polling that we've seen from it. Biden's polling hasn't been declining at all due to these documents. And I think people are just generally kind of over it. The real important issue here, though, Rich, is how are we storing our classified documents? Senator Biden, Vice President Biden, Vice President Pence, Donald Trump, they should not be able to, to remove these documents and then just have them out in the ether. So I'm not comparing the cases because there are difference between um, Pence, Biden and what they did and what Trump did. But I think the real issue here is, come on, guys, for decades, we've needed to revamp this classification uh, system that we have and how we protect these documents. And that's not really been the focus in the media from my perspective, but it should be. This is a national security threat. Exactly. So when you wind the clock, why are people getting excited about it? And part of it, I think, is the hype around all things that Trump is doing must be the worst possible thing. Now, one of the things that baffles me, just by the way, as a side note, maybe we'll get to it, is why did Democrats do all this stuff? They should have just let Trump be Trump. And he would have people would have seen he's not a capable executive and he would have imploded. But they kept doing all this stuff that made him so sympathetic to certain parts of the populace. So they go into Mar-a-Lago in a highly publicized raid, and then you've got media filling in the blanks. Well, what if they were nuclear secrets he had? Nobody said he ever had any nuclear secrets. What level of classification was it? Well, it wasn't really ever reported. Recall his opponent in 2016 claimed to not know what the little C mark meant next to information on reports, despite having decades in the government. So it seemed like a little overkill. And then Biden comes in and arguably it's, you know, he's probably doing something for his memoirs or whatever, but he wasn't actually the president that could declassify. But it seems to me there's probably, to your point, something with the classification system that they all can't be that big of a doofus. I hope not. I think it's most likely what happened, and I hate to speculate or guess, but most likely what happened with Vice President Pence and um, Vice President Biden is probably accidentally packed him, some staffer. And that's not to put them off the hook, right? But the responses, that that just tends, it happens way more than it should. Human stupidity, human error. Uh, you know, not this mouth like uh, malicious intent or mendacity. It's just stupidity, and that that happens a lot. I, I think the the important thing though is uh, the FBI went to Pence's house. He invited them there. The FBI went to Biden's, and those two gentlemen took direction from the FBI, the DOJ, what to do, how to react. Whereas 
with former President Trump in this situation, he specifically lied. His lawyers lied. There's a large questions about the obstruction aspect, um, not necessarily whether they're going to go after him for you know having these potentially nuclear-related classified documents, which was reported in the Washington Post by Carol Leonig, who we had on the show and is, is a very respected reporter. Um, but it's like the way that he went about it, almost like the cover-up always gets you. It, it felt like he was not being as transparent and truthful. He wasn't being as transparent and truthful as both VP Pence and, and VP Biden. So there is like differences, but your overarching point, I think, that the system is broken, needs to be reexamined. Uh, and I don't really see the the you know willpower to actually do anything legislatively by the Republicans or the Democrats. Yeah. You know, look, and I don't actually see Donald Trump actually doing detailed work like packing boxes. So the boxes got packed. My guess is he didn't have any idea what was in there, but because he's such a loose cannon, he, <laughs> he was trying to stonewall it. And I don't think he's that strategic in what he does. It seems to do and say whatever pops into his head. And, you know, then where, where the public may or may not get alarmed, we had Sandy Berger, to your point, you go into the skiff, you go in the National Archives, you're not supposed to take anything out of there. So here's a defense analyst for the Clinton administration and he puts documents in his socks and leaves with them. And what happens to him? He gets a slap on the wrist. And that story dies out after a few years. And, and this is what I'm concerned about, is that when I think about the political situation and the reporting, this really creepy thing we've got going now, well, it depends who did it, whether it's good or whether it's bad, i.e., hey, my president, per Marjorie Taylor Greene would never have left let a spy balloon cross the United States. Oh, wait, he did. Oh, my president would never take documents. Oh, sorry, he did. It's comical that time gets spent on this stuff. And now there you are. You're in Washington. You work in the district every day, right? I do. Even if I'm working from home, I live in about half a mile from the Senate. Okay. So other things that are in the news, you, you had a great guest on about the debt. Just for the record, a lot of what he said about the public debt crowding out private investment, I've heard that for at least 40 years. It's been a statement about which party spends the most. And th it's clear that one party says my spending is better than your spending, but they both do it because there really isn't much of a constituency for restraint. But in the the, the circles that you run in and the people you deal with, what are they saying about the debt ceiling? Because it seems ridiculous. At the end of the day, we're going to raise the debt ceiling, right? I mean, it's there's no way around this. Without, I mean, it'd be suicidal, right? To, At yeah. some point, we will raise the debt ceiling. But, yeah, right. Um, exactly right. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, I think the guest was, was very interesting, clearly educated and knew what he was talking about. I, I think that what we hear both from the guest in this episode, from folks that are acting in good faith here in Washington, D.C., the guest made the – it dispelled a lot of Republican talking points. Um, number one, the debt is not similar to a personal credit card. That is a ridiculous statement. It's oversimplifying the issue. It doesn't take into account the bond markets or the U.S. military or our soft power uh, or and, our global standing. You, like, you don't get, you don't you can't get airline points for running up the, the debt. I mean, <laughs> they could they could fly for a long time with never paying 
So that's a, that right there is a huge difference. Um, but but also what was interesting is in this gentleman, I he, he's working for a conser- conservative think tank, right? That's all we know. He sounded pretty, um, you know, by the numbers uh, to to our ears. Um, he said, you don't need a bal- balance of debt in 10 years. Like the debt is a concern because it could crowd out, crowd out private investment. This is something that needs to be addressed, but it's not what's going to destroy the United States for your children tomorrow, right? This is a long simmering problem. We don't need to get it back to zero. We don't even need a balanced budget. We just need to slow spending down to the debt limit. And this really does deserve as much serious coverage rich as possible. Uh, It is irresponsible if you believe that we need to limit our spending as a government moving forward. It is irresponsible to mess around with the debt limit. And basically, he outlined a situation where we could have as a result of messing around the debt limit. I'm sure you've heard this multiple times. I've heard it from every reputable economist that even just messing with this thing puts the full faith and credit of the US government and our rule of law in question, which opens the door for a lot of bad things. In the immediate term, the the markets could tank uh, and tank 10%, 20%, thousands of points off the Dow overnight. Uh, Additionally to that, which is very scary and probably long lasting, is that folks who use the greenback, uh, the US dollar as the reserve currency, which gives us a ton, a tremendous amount of power, according to economists, they will then believe that the United States, due to our political dysfunction, is not a reliable partner. And because we aren't a reliable partner, they're going to now, over the next 5, 10, 20 years, look for ways to find an off-ramp away from the US dollar and away from using our currency as a security blanket in the global reserve, which would have immense consequences moving forward. So to put a fine point on it, Rich, it is irresponsible for either party. To, to negotiate around with the debt limit. I don't like government shutdowns, which is a totally entirely different thing. Um, but the, if you're going to try and limit spending from a strategic and adult standpoint, go shut down the government, right? Go have the fight on the spending that it actually is related to, uh, the future spending to keep the US government open. Don't have a fight on whether we're going to pay our bills or not that could result in a global uh, depression, right? So that that's what we're hearing. I think you said the key word that the people in the outside of Washington think about. It's, it's, it's the term adult. And look, there's really only three ways of resolving the national debt. Number one, you can raise taxes to the point where you're collecting more than you're spending and you're using that to whittle down the debt. That is a way. Another way is to restrain spending so that the receipts, which have been very impressive, overtake the spend and, and you whittle it down. The third way is that you have to default. So I kind of imagine like, here comes the collectors. Hey, we're, we're here to collect our debt. And Uncle Sam shrugs his shoulders and goes, I don't have it. Can we work something out here? I give you two bucks for every hundred dollars that I owe you. That is obviously, I'm being facetious about that. But to your point is, we've already run up the obligation. It needs to be resolved. And the only way to do it's going forward. Now, and I didn't look into this. So maybe if your memory is better than mine, we can talk about it. I believe we had one of these crises before under President Obama. And I think the negotiated point was a sequester for across the board spending reductions in exchange for raising the debt ceiling. 
Could you care to comment on that? Yes, essentially. There was mandatory spending caps, for which is the sequester, and it was negotiated during the Obama presidency, and I believe it was 2011. The standoff got so close, Rich, to the limit of the time when we needed to raise the limit that the U.S. was actually downgraded and our, our credit rating, and and it cost us, the taxpayer, right, me and you, because when your credit down goes down, as everybody knows, interest rates go up. So we, it spent us billions and billions and billions of dollars just because they were messing around with potentially defaulting, never mind defaulting. Justin, from a standpoint, from a lay audience that I'm part of, it seemed like the sequester was almost painless. There was so much spending going on that even a little restraint, which helped the finances of the country, wasn't really felt. There weren't people starving in the streets or massive cuts here or there. Maybe that's a great solution again, or or are we in a different time, or do we need to get someone else on to talk about that? (laughs) I can opine, but I am certainly not an economist. I did work as a policy advisor in Congress under those sequestration mandates and and the policy. So I kind of got to see how it it was implemented. So we can go through that in a little bit. But number one, I think importantly, the economists we just had on, many economists, Rich, I would argue, and this is proved by Trump's approach to coronavirus relief, Biden's approach to coronavirus relief. There was the view that back in 2008, back in 2010, the stimulus and the financial cuts of spending to the U.S. government actually exacerbated the issue. It slowed down the recovery to a point where it wasn't ideal and we could do better the next time around. And that is largely what prompted bipartisan consensus that they needed to go big with this coronavirus spending relief packages, you know, so on and so forth over the course of years. So I would argue that there's a credible argument to be made that limiting the spending actually hurt the United States' ability to regain jobs. Now, what does this actually look like in practice? So you have these beautiful, if if you're a budget hawk, beautiful sequestration across the board, budget cuts, except when it comes to programs where there's bipartisan consensus. So what was happening is basically they were suspending the mandates and they were raising uh, raising spending by Uh, amendments and carve-outs so that ultimately in practice, um, it it was working in certain areas. In other areas, it would be ignored because there is the bipartisan ability to address it. Now, when we're talking about government funding in these hard caps, there are winners and losers. So obviously, Rich, I'm I'm a centrist. I'm like a center-left Joe Manchin type. I believe the debt matters. I believe that eventually we need to get it under control. But I also believe in taking a scalpel as opposed to an axe. Um, because when you create these caps, there are programs that are going to be hurt. Um, so for example, let's use um, HIV testing and awareness funding. It's a relatively really small portion of our budget, right? But if we have these caps, that HIV screening and testing program for healthcare will go head to head against, I don't know, uh, heart screening. For, for folks to make sure that there's no disease and early markers. And, and these are two things that really, really matter, especially to underserved communities. And you can do that in every single industry, every single sector. Um, so programs are cut. I think to your point, though, how do we address the debt? And that really leads us to the question, there is currently, and I'm not saying this is a partisan, there is no unified 
Republican plan on how to address these things. You have um, Speaker McCarthy floating the idea of Re, uh, reducing spending to 2022 levels, which would in effect be the suggestion about a sequestration and budget caps. But then you have other folks like Matt Gates, and there are more credible voices, Rich, saying they want to cut Social Security and Medicare. So it's it's all over the place, and we need a plan so that folks like you and I, and then the staffers on the Hill, and then Democrats and Republicans can actually discuss this thing without a plan. It's not negotiation, Rich. It's hostage taking, and I and I mean that very clearly. Look, it feels that way. So I think you brought up a lot of things there. So clearly, you burnished your centrist credentials with some supply side arguments, and also saying that most of the government spending is essential. So nicely done there, sir. Uh, threading the needle, Justin. But it, the last time we had an actual plan was a Simpson Bowles many years ago. And Alan Simpson said, we've managed to, and I think he's used the term piss off everybody because there's things, for example, on social security and Medicare that we need to address. And here's the facts. The facts are that a young worker trying to establish a household is paying transfer taxes to affluent senior people. That's how it's set up. And people say, well, I've paid in my whole life. Yeah, you paid in transfer payments to the generation ahead of you. And now for me as a baby boomer, we have this big population moving through and not as many workers coming online behind us. I believe it was about 13 workers to every one person that was a beneficiary back in the 1970s. And now it's about one to one. It's unsustainable from a demographic standpoint. And, you know, Social Security itself was put into place when only one in four Americans live past the age of 65. And now, of course, the fastest growing part of the population is people over 100, then people over 90. So this idea that 65 is the retirement age, if the life expectancy is going on for another 25 years, it's an unsustainable system the way we have it. And it, there has to be something done to reform it. Similarly, Medicare taxes, when I was a young person trying to get started, starting with zero or a little less than zero, there was no Medicare tax. Now it's 2.9% of a young person's wages. On top of that, 15 plus percent for Social Security. And none of that's going any place. It's not getting invested. It's going directly out in beneficiaries to people like me. That's the system we have today. And we need to do something about it and deal with the demographics and not with the politics. Yeah, it's just, it's not, there's, there's not going to be the political will by the GOP. We saw that when President well, Trump. No, it's, not a, it's not the GOP. It's all, find me a person of any stripe in Washington, D.C. that says we want to go and reduce Social Security benefits. Paul Ryan did this. And he, his own party uh, vociferously was, was against him when he was in power. So, Right. You can't find a Democrat or a Republican that wants to actually address the underlying demographic and stop the lying. The lying is, you know, you've been paying in. Now you're taking your benefits out. No, you made transfer payments. Now you want someone else to make the transfer payments. There's not enough of them. They don't make enough money. There's too many people taking money out of the system. That's the problem. And you've got basically two ways out of this. One, reduce the benefits by a means test or some other way, 
or you've got to raise taxes on the people that are still working, or you've got to use a different way of taxing to fund Medicare and Social Security. The, those are the numbers. Those in, in undeniable numbers, undeniable demographics. I think that means testing so that you know wealthy folks don't take out of the system, and it just turns into. I guess you'd call it a tax, right? I don't know if, if, if it would be transfer payments. I'm not the economist here, but I think that there's no, no problems with that. I, I have issues with trying to you know, raise the retirement age for these programs. I, I do think that uh, it's just travesty when our senior citizens aren't able to work and then are living below the poverty line. And Social Security isn't a cure-all for certain. But I, I think that there's a certain level of, of dignity that, that ultimately a, a society like the United States should be able to work towards ensuring for our citizens, especially folks that have paid into a system their whole life. I think that another way of looking at this and something that you brought up that is very important and there's very little political will at the moment, it won't be addressed in the next two years, is immigration reform. So we need more workers. And it's a very simple way of doing this. The Gang of Eight back in 2013, 2014, it was Republicans, it was Democrats. They were talking about increasing legal illegal immigration um, caps for the year that you're allowed to uh, bring people in, streamlining the bureaucratic process to make it quicker so you don't have to wait 15 years to go through this process, finding a pathway to citizenship for nonviolent immigrants that were here illegally without documentation. Again, all ways of increasing our workforce that we need to do and addresses some of this problem. Exactly. Getting a green card when you get your doctorate. And these were all great compromise positions with with the Gang of Eight. And most of the immigration reform hasn't differed administration to administration. But the opposition on a soundbite that George Bush had basically the same plan Barack Obama had, but the right wing of the Republicans said, oh, amnesty. They found that was a winner. The Democrats got the voice from the union bosses and they opposed it. And that was the coalition that stopped immigration reform. And, and, and so, Justin, I think this brings us to the topic for today is that the way news is covered and the way our politicians behave. And I think that they're very much intertwined. So immigration, just as you've talked about, is a very solvable problem. And people want to come here. And by and large, most of the people that come here, they're no different than any other immigrant group. Give me a chance. That's it. This notion that somebody is going to walk across a desert, be at risk for two-legged and four-legged coyotes, come across, talking about the southern border now, of course, a river, evade law enforcement so they can get a job. They're not lazy. They're, They're coming here to work. And then people will say, well, but they're all adult men. They must be here for nefarious purposes. At the same time, they'll talk about their great-great-grandfather who came from named Ireland, Russia, Ukraine, wherever, Italy, by themselves, and until they made enough money to send for their wife and children. This has been going on forever, and we've managed to make a mess of it because we're not getting good reporting. And frankly, I think that the media system has found a way to make money 
versus a way to do the function that they're supposed to be doing, which kind of brings us right now to what's happened with the Twitter files, Hamilton 68, all of that. Have you read up on this at all? about what's going on. This should be the biggest story on the front page. Well, I disagree, but um, I did do some preparations for this show. I listened to a Ben Shapiro podcast. I did some reading. And then as they came out, I was reading them and listening to discussions. But I am by no means an expert here in, in this stuff. I don't know what Ben Shapiro is saying about this, but what's clear is that a small group of people took normal Americans who had a a right-leaning position and said that is a Russian bot or a Russian response, and then was telling Twitter that you've got to stop all these accounts that are espousing this view because it's being driven by Russia. There were no Russians involved, period. That's the story. But every major outlet, the Washington Post, the New York Post, NPR, all the major cable networks, even so-called fact-checking places like Snopes, were referring to Hamilton 68. And as it was quoted in emails from Twitter employees, the idea that the Russians had infiltrated is bullshit. It's not true. That story seems to me rather important on the heels of now understanding that beyond a shadow of a doubt with primary information that the FBI Department of Homeland Security and other agencies were directing Facebook about what accounts to throttle and put on and do the same thing with Twitter. We need to have that discussion. What's the power of those platforms and how much influence should our federal government have or our state government have on that open discourse? That's a That to me seems to be a very important question. Well, I think there's a lot there, right? So I think in the right wing sphere, they're taking this. Why is, a, why is it a right wing issue? Well, let me explain. Let me let me, let me explain. because if Donald be- Trump, if Donald Trump was discovered to have said that Joe Biden is a puppet of the Syrian regime and said Syrians that have been all over Twitter and Biden was tarred as being a a Syrian puppet, would that be a story? Completely false, by the way. I, I, I don't know about the, the hypotheticals, right? I, I can only deal with the, the facts that we have. And I think the main I mean, the, the problem... Well, they did it. It's been proven. They did it. Well, I, I think the main problem here is, from my experience working during the 2016 campaign for the RNC on behalf of President Trump, uh, and understanding the claims of Russian meddling, what we're having happen here is a lot of things are getting inflated. So I don't think that when we talk about Russian meddling, primarily folks that are involved with this stuff that worked on the campaigns, even remotely thought about Twitter. That that never crossed my mind during this whole process. Uh, during the election, it was seriously being focused on WikiLeaks and the way that that intelligence was gathered, the way that it was given to Julian Assange, and then ultimately what that intelligence met. I remember an FBI agent going through the RNC in June, late June, early July, telling us to be aware of Russian hacking because it did happen at the DNC. So I think what is happening here is that this 
small Russian hacking thing with Twitter and this independent, uh, basically think tank board of folks showing that these accounts could be Russian bots. It's getting all looped together to undermine the fact that Russians did influence and attempt to influence our election in 2016. So I, I think that that needs to be uh, so taken we, separately. We, we, we know we know that, that, that they did that. But remember, the case was... Well, I'm just saying the media people, is conflating everything. Directly. And people that were on the committee by, in secondhand by, by their trusted sources, that they really believed that the, that the 2016 election changed based on Facebook ads that the Russians put there. That's their belief. That's why they had to have Robert Mueller appointed. Of course, what we now know today, all that was bought and paid for by the DNC and the Clinton campaign. We have an FBI director that took a salacious piece of a known false report and present that to the president of the United States with the intent of getting a special prosecutor. And to me, when, when you're looking at these things, and again, I don't like the idea of Donald Trump ever having been president. I don't, don't think he was a qualified for the job. I don't think he was interested in learning the job. And I think he has massive personal problems. And, he, and that was all on display. So this is no defense of Trump, but he did get elected. And all of this stuff was noise. It turned out to be false. And it turned out to be an exercise of our intelligence agencies in a way that I don't think anybody intended. And had the shoe been on the other foot, I think the reporting would have been much different. I just, I, th- I think that the influence, I mean, so you're going to have folks who claim that one thing influenced the election, and this is the reason why it turned out the way it did. It's never one thing. There are so many different independent variables here and factors that it's hard to understand causation, correlation, maybe impossible to, to, to directly link anything to any one thing to the outcome. Um, but I think unequivocally, it's been shown that there was Russian meddling and interference. And from my perspective, having to go through thousands of WikiLeak documents at the RNC and flag them and then create the narratives, uh, I think that it was very impactful. I think everything else you mentioned uh, regarding Comey's uh, two or three announcements before the election were arguably more impactful uh, in favor of President Trump. I remember during the October news conference, we were all celebrating. Now my former boss is SVP at Fox News and he's getting deposed for the Dominion case and he's you know running a lot of stuff over there. Uh, he was celebrating. He's like, Justin, Jim Comey just did us a big favor. This is a press conference. The American people are going to hear guilty, even though there's no um, you know, uh, move to prosecute her. So I think that there are a lot of things that uh, were very important and unequivocally Russian interference did impact the election. Now, I think that the, one of the reasons well, why- there's, Look, there's, there's not a lick of evidence that the election turned on anything Russian- Period. It's not there. It's a it's a false story, and it's been disproven. And you brought up you know the whole email thing, and here's where my bullshit detector goes on red. Do you know how much work it is to set up your own email server? There's a million ways to get email. You can get encrypted email in ten minutes off of Proton Mail and other ones, but to go set up your own server, use that, then destroy it. And destroy all the heart, all the the discs. That takes a lot of work to cover up yoga poses and photos of your wedding. So, to me, it's 
I'd say, what do I believe? I don't know what to believe because it just sounds like a lot of work and trying to bluff it off like, oh, I, I never paid much attention to how email was handled. You know, come on. It's just, it's just not a believable story. Um, but let's talk about another one kind of in the same area. Um, uh, no, no, no. I just want to say I completely disagree. I literally did this for a job working for the RNC to get Trump elected. I completely disagree about most of what you said. And similar to the classified, and I'm not here to defend the email server, but the email server, similar to the classified documents uh, that, that we discussed, there was a practice of folks doing this, specifically Republicans and Democrats. I'm not defending it, but Colin Powell did it. Hillary Clinton did it. And Jared Kushner, when he was a government advisor, he did the same exact thing after the Clinton email stuff. So, I mean, that's just all to say that I I don't want to try and relitigate the 2016 election. And I just have a different view. I have your point that Jared Kushner, as an example of what's okay, I'm just going to leave that there. But the difference with Colin Powell, Colin Powell used a Yahoo for non-governmental, non-confidential things like confirming appointments and the like. And again, that's a great example. Yahoo, uh, get a Yahoo mail at that time takes, you know, what, five minutes to set up. A far different level of effort than building a server in your own house. And with all the technology that goes into that, everybody, remember my background is in technology. When I looked at this, this... The story on the surface was not believable even before the fire. All right, we're going to stop right there, and that's going to conclude part one of this interview that Rich has had with Justin Higgins. It's a really wonderful interview, and we hope you come back next week for part two. It'll be episode 196. And until then, we're signing off on The Common Bridge. Thanks for joining us on The Common Bridge. Subscribe to The Common Bridge on Substack.com or use their Substack app, where you can find more interviews, columns, videos, and nonpartisan discussions of the day. Just search for The Common Bridge. You can also find The Common Bridge on Mission Control Radio on your Radio Garden app.